This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41, and these are the words that he pens. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly or surely this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Five movements in the text this morning. That's the way your notes come to you. That's the way your outline comes to you. We'll be briefer on a few and a little bit weightier on a couple. I'll write this down, number one, if you're taking notes, the cloud. The cloud. This is the first scene in our text this morning. We see the cloud. Look back at your Bible. Find verse 33 there. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It is now the sixth hour, that is, noon on Friday. Jesus has now been on the cross for 180 excruciating minutes. For three horrific hours, Jesus has allowed, he has allowed his lifeblood to pour from his wounds. Remember, Jesus is on the cross willingly. Jesus is on the cross voluntarily. It was Jesus Christ himself that said in his own words, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord and I will take it back up. No Roman centurion, not Pilate, not the guards, no one but Jesus himself laid his life down. Jesus was hung on the cross at the third hour. It's about 9 a.m., and now at the sixth hour, noon, sun fails. A cloud of darkness blankets Calvary and over the whole land, Mark tells us. Matthew says that as well. Over the whole land, darkness fell. By a miraculous act of Almighty God, midday now becomes midnight. God turns the lights out. God turns the lights out. Many people have postulated how this darkness might have occurred. Uh, some, some say, well, this was a sandstorm maybe that obscured the, the sun. Others say this was an eclipse, but you have to keep in mind that uh, there was a massive full moon at the Passover. That's all nonsense. This darkness is a direct result of God's abandonment of his own son. Even the sun fails to shine. Most likely this darkness was local, uh, probably covering Jerusalem and the local countryside around it. 
in a black blanket. Whatever the case, we don't know that for sure, whether it was local or whether it was global, whatever the case, the Greek tenses here in the text indicate that this darkness came suddenly and all of the Gospels regard it as a supernatural wonder. God has done this. God has turned the lights out on Calvary. What's the significance of this darkness, you ask? Well, darkness symbolizes divine fury. As you go back and you study potentially this theme, especially through the Old Testament, you will find this to be true. Darkness symbolizes righteous wrath. Darkness symbolizes final fury being unleashed on Jesus Christ at the cross. Darkness is the ultimate form of God's presence in judgment. Let me rewind that statement because it's packed with significance. Darkness is the ultimate form of God's presence in judgment. You know, I think a lot of times we think that judgment is the absence of divine presence. Well, that's absolutely not the case. Judgment is not the absence of divine presence. Judgment is the absence of mercy. It's the absence of mercy. And we know that here on the cross, Jesus Christ did not receive mercy. He did not receive mercy. Darkness is the ultimate form of God's presence in judgment. That's why hell, which is everlasting subjection to divine judgment, is referred to, uh, especially in Matthew's gospel, three times as a matter of fact, as the place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in eternal blackness or eternal darkness. And so we see at Golgotha the darkness of God's presence. The darkness of God's presence. This darkness would have communicated volumes to the Jewish people. This would have brought back stark reminders of the very first Passover. Remember, Passover is what everybody is in Jerusalem celebrating in the first place. And so this darkness would have brought back stark reminders of the first Passover. The ninth plague in Egypt was a three-day darkness, followed by the last, the tenth plague, which was what? Can you remember? The death of the firstborn son. The ninth plague, three-day darkness, the tenth and final plague, was the death of the firstborn. Exodus chapter 10. You see, the darkness at Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and God's beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. But friends, this darkness over the land could not compare to the darkness that hovered over Jesus' spirit this day. As heaven shut its doors, Jesus' soul sinks to an abyss lower than yours or mine will ever know. History will never again contain a day as dark as this day was. And friends, I have to tell you, there is an undoubted, it goes without saying, mystery to Christ's experience in these dark hours. It's a mystery that we will never fully unravel. But we do know this, that in the garden the day before Jesus was crucified, he anticipated all that would take place. He anticipated the crucifixion. He anticipated the mockery. He anticipated the physical pain. He sweat beads of blood and he said, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. 
even to death. That intense pain which Jesus felt as he was pinned to the cross, we may best summarize with this singular word, alone. Jesus bled and died alone. Alone. Benjamin H. Price, a hymn writer in the early 1900s, penned these words. Just listen here for a moment. It was alone, the Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone he drained the bitter cup and suffered there for me. It was alone the Savior stood in Pilate's judgment hall. Alone the crown of thorns he wore, forsaken thus by all. Alone upon the cross he hung that others he might save, forsaken by the God and man. Alone his life he gave. Alone, alone, he bore it all alone. He gave himself to save his own. He suffered, bled, and died alone. Alone. The first movement in the text, the first scene in the text we see this morning, friends, is the cloud of darkness. The cloud of darkness, uh, which is the symbol of God's divine wrath, God's divine fury, God's divine anger, God's settled hatred directed towards sin. If you ever want to know what God thinks about sin, just look at the cross. Just be reminded of the cross. Number two, write this down. We see the cry, or the, the cloud at number one. Secondly, the cry. The cry from Calvary. Find verse 34 there in your Bible. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Experiencing the full brunt of the Father's wrath, Jesus cannot any longer stay silent. It's very likely that up to this point, Jesus remained utterly silent, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So the Son of Man, before those who would crucify him, was also silent. But Jesus can no longer stay silent. At the ninth hour at 3 p.m., silence is broken by a piercing cry. With what physical strength he had left, Jesus cried out these words, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani. This is Aramaic, okay? And so Mark helps us out here. He's a gentleman and a scholar. He helps us out here. And so he translates that for his readers, which you find there probably in parentheses or in quotations there in your Bible. Mark translates it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The literal Greek here, the literal language behind the translation sitting on your lap is, for what reason have you forsaken me? Or for what reason have you abandoned me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For what reason have you abandoned me? Jesus' cry was not one of physical pain. It was not one of psychological confusion. It was not even one of the dread of death. No, it was the cry of the Son of God who was now experiencing something that he had previously never known. From before time began, 
From eternity past, the Son of God had never known separation from his Father. He had never known estrangement or abandonment from his Father. But here, at 3 p.m. on this Friday, the Son was forsaken by the Father. Jesus' cry here is a quotation and a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. The psalmist writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The psalmist writes, This psalm, as it addresses God, is not a cry of total despair, it's a cry of submission and dependence. In Psalm 22, as a matter of fact, the context is of one who's struggling, uh, but who trusts in the Lord. And so Jesus' cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For what reason have you abandoned me? Is actually a cry affirming his abiding trust. Yes, there was separation. Yes, there was a turning of the back between the Father and the Son. But Jesus is affirming his abiding trust. Jesus died forsaken by the Father so that his people might claim God as their God and never be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that those who trust in him will never be forsaken. Will never be forsaken. The writer of Hebrews tells us for those who are in Christ, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. It's important to note that when Jesus cried out here, my God, my God, this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus ever referred to God in any other way save his Father. Every other time he spoke to God, he called him his Father. Except this time. Except 3 o'clock this Friday afternoon. And so, why? Why my God instead of my Father in this hour? Well, because in this one moment, Jesus views himself and knows himself not as the Father's Son, but as the sinner's sacrifice. doesn't change his position. He is the Father's Son. We're not talking about positional statements here. But in this moment, in this hour... Jesus views himself as the center of sacrifice. Jesus is functioning as a man functions, and he dies on the cross functioning as a man who, because of our sin, are forsaken by God. The writer of Habakkuk, Habakkuk himself, the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 1.13, reminds us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. Too pure to look on evil. What does it mean that the Father forsook the Son? I think there are a few things that we know here, and I think that a lot is a mystery. When we think about what does it mean that the Father forsook the Son? I mean, how can God forsake God? Uh, the answer must then rest in the fact that God the Father judicially deserted the Son's human nature. God the Father judicially, like a court proceeding, a court hearing, 
forsook the son's human nature. And we're talking about a a dual-natured individual here. Very God of very God, very man of very man. 100% God, 100% man. The theanthropic one, theos, God, anthropos, man. And so on the cross here, God the Father judicially deserts the Son's human nature because God cannot forsake God. This This is tough to wrap our minds around, at least it is for me. It's challenging. But in this moment, God placed the sins of the world on his Son. And Jesus, for a time, felt the desolation of being unconscious of his Father's presence. As God the Father turned his back. It was at this time that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Charles Spurgeon once said this, he said, Our blessed Lord had lived in unbroken fellowship with God and to be forsaken was a new grief to him. He had never known what the dark was until that moment. His life had been lived in the full light of his Father. His fellowship with the Father was of the highest, deepest, fullest order. And what a lost loss it must have been. We lose but drops when we lose our joyful experience of heavenly fellowship. But to our Lord Jesus Christ, the sea of fellowship with his Father was dried up. The sea of his intimate fellowship with the Father was all dried up. Friends, we cannot conceive what this separation meant to the one who from eternity past had known no separation from his loving Father, yet it shows us, as nothing else does, how utterly terrible sin really is. Again, if you want to know what God thinks about sin, all you've got to do is to look at the cross. Is to look at the cross. Number three, write this down. This will be a brief thought here. We see some confusion. Confusion at the cross. Look at verses 35 and 36. And some of the bystanders, those around the cross... Hearing it, that was Jesus' loud cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hearing that, they said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. We see some confusion taking place around the cross, which should not be uh, strange to us. We saw confusion surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in those who were in his midst. And so apparently here, some Jewish bystanders misunderstood or more likely as a mockery deliberately misinterpreted Jesus' cry as a call to Elijah. Now, having said that, Eloi, God, does sound a lot like Elias or Elijah. And so it's possible that there's just misunderstanding here, but 
More likely, this is a mockery, a deliberate misrepresentation of Jesus' words. You see, popular Jewish belief held that Elijah came in times of distress to deliver righteous sufferers. And so they're partly mocking Jesus, but at the same time, I think they're probably standing on pins and needles wondering, is Elijah really going to come? Let's see what happens. As a matter of fact, no, so he can speak clearly. Why don't you lift up something for him to drink so he can clear his throat? Remember, Jesus' tongue is probably swollen in his mouth. And so some sour wine is lifted up to Jesus, maybe so that those bystanders around the cross can hear his words a little bit clearer. Probably a response to Jesus' additional words. We see it in John's gospel. Jesus' words, I thirst. It's one of the seven statements that Jesus made from the cross. I thirst. And so we lift up sour wine to Jesus. This is different from the, uh, the wine mixed with myrrh, the anesthetic uh, that we talked about previously. And so a bystander here. Soaked a sponge with wine vinegar diluted with a mixture of eggs. Sounds delightful, doesn't it? This was a common and inexpensive beverage in Jesus' day. Raised on a stick to Jesus so that his mouth could extract some refreshment from it. If the drink prolonged his life, the spectators would have a chance to see if Elijah would really come and take him down from the cross. Friends, this scene makes clear that darkness was not exclusively over the land, but that darkness was in the hearts and minds of the people. That's what sin does. Sin leaves us in darkness. Sin leaves us in a position of judicial separation from God. You see, Jesus is paying the penalty that is due to us. You think about this darkness. Go back and read this week if if you have time. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And God has made himself clear. Matter of fact, the word clear in Romans 1 has the idea of shining or sparkling. God has made his divine attributes, his presence, sparkling, clear so that we can't miss it. Yet what did we do? What did we do? We exchanged the glory of God for the likeness of things that creep and crawl on the ground. Right? Right? We refuse to look at the light. Why? Because those who live in darkness love the darkness. And light exposes the darkness. John chapter 3. This scene makes clear that darkness was not only over the land, but that darkness ruled in the hearts and minds of the people. Friends, let me just tell you lovingly, kindly, truthfully, graciously, If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ savingly, darkness rules in your heart and mind too. Until Jesus comes and turns the light switch on by divine regeneration, until he gives new life to your otherwise dead heart, you will live in darkness. You'll live in darkness. Claiming to be wise while rejecting the truth. Confusion. Sin brings confusion. Number four, write this down. The curtain. 
the curtain. We've seen the cloud, the cry, the confusion, and now the curtain. Look at verse 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus' loud cry here, before he breathed his last, indicated that he did not die the ordinary death of one who was crucified. Here's what I mean by that. Normally, a crucified person suffered extreme exhaustion for a long period, oftentimes two or three days, and then lapsed into a coma before dying. But Jesus was fully conscious right up until the moment that he breathed his last. Jesus was fully conscious up until the end. His death came voluntarily and suddenly. This probably accounts for Pilate's surprise in verse 44 when, when Pilate is, is, uh, is taken back by the fact that Jesus is already dead. He's already expired. He's already gone. Happened very quickly. What I want you to notice here is that the cry of Jesus in verse 37 is significantly different from the cry of Jesus back in verse 34. You see, the cry of Jesus in verse 34 was the cry of estrangement. It was the cry of separation. But the cry here in verse 37 is not a cry of separation. It is a cry of victory. Jesus here in verse 37, when he uttered a loud cry, this is what, uh, what John speaks to in John chapter 19, when Jesus cried aloud, it is finished. It is finished. Sin's payment is finished. Sin's power is finished. Guilt is finished. Shame is finished. Jesus uttered a loud cry, it is finished. And then breathe his last. I want us to ponder for just a few moments here what Jesus' death victoriously accomplished for us. What was it that Jesus' death victoriously accomplished for us? In other words, what is, what is packed in that short phrase, it is finished? It is finished. Let me give you five thoughts here. I didn't. Write them for you in your outline. So if you want to A, B, C, D, E, uh, right here under uh, point number four, you can do that. Might be helpful for you in the organizing of your thoughts. What did Jesus' death victoriously accomplish for us? What is packed in that short phrase? It is finished. That loud cry. Well, first of all, propitiation. Propitiation. P-R-O. Hang with me here. P-I-T. I-A-T-I-O-N, propitiation. The word propitiation, it means to satisfy or to appease. This word directly addresses the wrath of God. Propitiation, it directly addresses the wrath of God. You see, propitiation is the work of Christ saving us from God's wrath by absorbing it in his own person as our substitute. Jesus Christ became our propitiation. He absorbed all of God's wrath, all of God's divine justice, all of God's settled hatred towards sin in himself as our substitute. He is our propitiation. 
The word propitiation actually goes a step further. Propitiation is not simply a sacrifice that removes wrath, but a sacrifice that removes wrath and in turn turns it into favor. Turns it into favor. You see the prefix pro, propitiation, that prefix there, pro, it means for. So propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude or God's disposition so that he moves from being at enmity with us to being friends with us. As we heard in our communion this morning, to being at peace with us. God crushed his son, whom he had peace with from eternity past, so that he could be at peace with us instead. Peace. Through this process of propitiation, we're restored into right fellowship and we're given favor with God. The symbolism of propitiation is illustrated by the two goats uh, that we see. If you have studied the Old Testament, uh, particularly or specifically the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll know that on the Day of Atonement, two goats were used. The first goat represented Christ's work of propitiation as that goat was killed, as it was sacrificed, and its blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat in the temple. But there was a second goat. There was a second goat. And that second goat represented Christ's work of expiation in removing or blotting out the sins that were against us. So what did Jesus' death victoriously accomplish for us? You've got A there, propitiation. Number two, write this down, expiation. XP, EXP, sorry. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Expiation. Expiation. The prefix X there, it means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. To expiate means to remove our sin and its associated guilt. Again, the prophet Habakkuk tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. Too pure to look on evil. And so the guilt of our sin was taken away from us. It was placed on Christ who discharged it by his death. Jesus takes away, that is, he expiates our sin. It was the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 that says, The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Jesus expiates our sin. He takes away the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that is attached to our sin. Third, what did Jesus accomplish? What is packed in that little phrase? It is finished. Well, reconciliation is in there. We see propitiation, we see expiation, and now we see reconciliation. Propitiation, again, refers to the removal of God's wrath. Expiation, again, refers to the removal of our sins. And reconciliation refers to the removal of our alienation from God. To be at peace with him. Because of our sins, we were alienated and separated from God. That's Colossians 1.21. And so Jesus' death removed this alienation and thus reconciled us to God. Paul speaks about this reconciliation in Romans chapter 5. He says, for if we were enemies at one time, 
We've now been reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? He reconciles us to himself. He deals with our sin in a judicial sense, condemning the the innocent in our place. He's our propitiation and our expiation, but then he brings us near in reconciliation. Fourth, write this down, redemption is in there. Redemption. Our sins had put us in captivity from which we needed to be delivered. And so the price paid to deliver someone from captivity is referred to as a ransom or a redemption. Jesus Christ's death accomplished our redemption or our ransom in that he paid full price for our penalty. There are three things that we had to be released from. We had to be released from the curse of the law, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. The curse of the law, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. And Jesus Christ redeemed us from them all. He redeemed us. And then lastly, Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness. He triumphed over the powers of darkness. Christ's death was a defeat of the power of Satan. Paul wrote this in Colossians chapter 2. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. You see, the law demands that you and I be condemned. Unless someone is condemned in your place. But someone has to die. Someone has to die. And so Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands. He set it aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. In so doing, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Jesus triumphed over the powers of darkness. Friends, there is more contained in that short phrase, it is finished. Let those things encourage your soul. Let them encourage your soul. Look back at the text there. Look at verses 37 and 38. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And then we see this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple torn in two from top to bottom. Mark does not record the earthquake. Uh, that is mentioned in Matthew, nor the earthquake that introduced Jesus' resurrection, but he does mention one of the results of that quaking of the ground. And one of the results was that the massive woven curtain in the temple was torn in two. Was torn in two. The curtain or the veil, it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It it separated, it blocked off where God's holiness dwelt. Only one person, the high priest, was allowed in the Holy of Holies, and only on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the curtain that stood there in the temple represented the inaccessibility of God under the Old Covenant. You cannot just come into the presence of God as you wish and as you will. The high priest has to come on your behalf, and he's got to make sure he's clean. Remember, we we, we tied a rope around his ankles 
So if he went in in an unclean matter and dropped dead in the Holy of Holies, he could be pulled back out. I mean, God's serious when he deals with sin. Only one person on one day of the year was able to trespass beyond the curtain. But at three o'clock on this Friday afternoon, the old covenant was abolished, the temple was nullified, and the priesthood was voided. Access to God was now open to all Gentile and Jew, layperson as well as priest, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the passive verb here in, in the text indicates that the direction of the tear, which was from top to bottom, was God's action. God did this. Just as God turned the lights out in verse 33, God tore the curtain in the temple. God tore his own curtain, he wrecked his own temple, he chastised his own son, and he rendered the sacrificial system obsolete. In so doing, he made himself accessible with open arms. Whosoever will, come. Come. In faith and repentance. And receive mercy full and free. I was going to jump us over to a text, we don't have time to look at it, but maybe right there in the margin, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. Verses 12 through 22. We'll give you some added insight and encouragement as it pertains to the torn veil. Friends, now instead of being banned from the Holy of Holies through the blood of Christ, we are now invited to draw near. And not only to draw near, but the writer of Hebrews tells us we draw near with great confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace or help in our time of need. We have access to God. You'd think that, that Larry and I sat down and penned the the communion and the message together. I was thinking as I was sitting there, I mean, I don't even need to preach anymore because Larry's already mentioned several of these things. We have now have access to God, free access to God through our suffering sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, and lastly this morning, we see the confession. The confession. Look at verses 39 through 41. Find them there in your Bible. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he, Jesus, was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Two groups of people here. We see the centurion and we see the women. Let me say just a few words about each. And then we'll draw it to a close. The centurion first here, as it appears in the text, the manner of Jesus' death, probably speaking to Jesus' loud cry in verse 37, the it is finished cry, prompted this centurion to declare surely, or literally, truly, Despite all the insults to the contrary, this man hanging on the cross from the centurion's perspective is the Son of God. Amazingly, it was not one of Jesus' marvelous miracles or his tremendous teachings that evoked this confession in the centurion. It was Jesus' passion. 
It was the passion of his death. And like the centurion, I think Mark wants his readers to confess Jesus as the Christ. Have you? Have you confessed the Lord Jesus as the Christ? Where you've come to a point in your life where you said, truly this man is the Son of God. Truly this man is the Messiah come from God who will take away the sins of the world. Hallelujah, because I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior like that. Truly, truly this man was the Son of God. We don't know exactly what the centurion understood here. We don't know if this was the, was the cry of repentance or if this centurion was just referring to Jesus like the people would refer, refer to Caesar as a son of God, just lumping Jesus in with other bigwigs. I don't know exactly what's taking place in this centurion's heart, but nonetheless, Jesus wants, or Mark rather, I think wants his readers, that's you and I, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so the question is, have you? Will you? The veil's torn, access is open. Jesus bids you come. Come as you are, even. But you must come in faith and repentance. You must turn your back on your sin and turn your face to Christ. And in turning your face to Christ, you put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone. And then we see this group of women here. Notice that no other men are mentioned by Mark. We see the centurion, but no other men are mentioned by Mark as being anywhere in the vicinity of the cross. But he does note that there were three women who were there. Mary of Magdala that Jesus had delivered from the demoniac. A second Mary who had two sons named James and Joseph and Salome, who is only mentioned by name in Mark. She was the mother of the disciples James and John and probably the sister of Jesus' mother. These ladies were there. They, along with other women, Mark notes here, they were faithful to Jesus to the bitter end. They very well may have watched the brutal events that took place at the cross from a distance but unlike his male disciples, unlike the chosen disciples, these women had a devotion that was not marked by absence, but rather that was marked by presence. They were there. All of Jesus' other disciples had fled the scene. And here are some faithful, faithful women. Their devotion surpassed that of the 11 disciples who had earlier desert deserted Jesus Mark may have intended these words as an encouragement to faithful discipleship among women in the church at Rome. Ladies, we are thankful for you. Thankful for what God is doing in and through you and how he uses you. It's a great encouragement to us. Well, friends, let's land the plane here. What does the death of Jesus of Nazareth mean to you? Let me, let me leave you with that question. What does the death of Jesus of Nazareth mean to you? Do you recognize it as the most important transaction in the history of the world? Is that how you regard the death of Jesus? 
Do you regard the death of Jesus as your only hope for forgiveness of sin and fellowship with your creator? Friends, Jesus was forsaken as your substitute. He was forsaken that God might not ever leave or forsake us. Friends, the victory has been won. The offer of forgiveness and fellowship, it still stands today. That offer still stands if you will repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Jesus died for uh, for us. We thank you that you have called some of us, even in this room, out of darkness and into marvelous light. Father, I pray that you would do that for, for others here. Lord, undoubtedly, there are uh, friends among us this morning who know Jesus, but just from a distance, and uh, who know Jesus by facts, who know Jesus by memory verses, but do not know Jesus savingly, personally, intimately. And Father, I pray that they would come, that they would relinquish uh, their they're thinking that they can save themselves, that they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. They would repent of their sin and trust wholly in Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you were the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Thank you that you are our propitiation. Thank you that you are our expiation. And thank you that you are our redemption. We love you only because you first loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.